Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this week I had the opportunity of interviewing Tracy Edwards, who's the woman who was the first British sailor to organize an all-women crew to participate in the Woodbread Round the World race in 1989 and 1990. I was at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City as a representative of the British weekly newspaper, Neil Fletcher's Company. This is a great interview, and I'm going to save the advertisements for sale right till the end of this interview. And I'm not going to be doing any questions or answers in this podcast. I'm going to save it for the next one. I'm at Sundance with Tracy Edwards. Tracy is the first woman to put together an all-female crew for the Round the World Whitbread Race in 1990. Yep, 1989-90. Okay. I've seen the film Maiden, and, and it's a great film. Any sailor would want to go see this film. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a film of, of a woman overcoming obstacles and uh, making a name for herself in a man's world. So most of our listeners haven't seen your film, so they're going to want to go see your film. So why don't you give us a synopsis of what you've done? Okay, so I first sailed around the world in, in the 1985-86 Whitbread Around the World race. Uh, that was with 17 guys. And I thought, uh, I love the sailing, uh, but out of this huge race of 230 people, there's only four girls. So this is crazy. So I came up with the idea of Maiden, which was to put an all-female crew in the race, because I thought that's really the only way we're going to prove once and for all that we can do it, that we'd not just be sort of a girl on a bloke's boat. I had no idea the stiff opposition that would uh, happen and how angry it made some people. It was all a bit of a mystery to me because I'd been on boats for a number of years before then, but because I didn't want to race with a, a team of girls, I'd never really come across chauvinism or... Um, never been told I uh, you know, couldn't do stuff. So that was a real eye-opener. And I always think, actually, if um, people had said to me, oh, that's a great idea, run along, I'd have thought, no, I'll go and do something else. But as soon as I was told, you can't do that, girls can't do that, I thought, right. So that's really, it's just bloody-mindedness, really, that, that you know, sort of creative maiden. Um, and I just, I mean, it was a, a long and difficult journey, um, but the ups were always better than the downs and getting the boat to, even just getting the boat to the start line was um, a, an achievement in itself. And then going on to do the race, uh, obviously I don't want to do the spoiler, but, you know, we, we did very well. And I think um, what people will, I think what they will take away from watching the film is that it's a very, very true and accurate reflection of the real roller coaster ride we went through from start to finish. Well, you didn't grow up sailing, so tell us about how you learned how to sail. Well, I grew up about as far away from the sea in England as it's possible to be, I think. Um, I was expelled from school when I was 15 years old. I was a vile and horrible teenager. And uh, my mother <laughs> thought it might be a good idea if I went travelling long way away from her, I think. Um, and I went backpacking down to Greece, ended up working in a bar at the Hague. What island? What island? Uh, well, I was actually, I, I did all the islands and then I went back to Preus and I was working in a bar in Zia Marina. 
And I'd see all these beautiful yachts out in the in the marina, but I just thought, well, it's just rich people, you know. I mean, I will never be able to be on a boat like that. And a guy came in one night and he said, you know, I'm I'm the skipper of one of these, you know, beautiful uh, charter yachts. My my stewardess has let me down. Would you like to, uh, you know, new job? Um, so I was sort of 17 years old. I had no qualifications, no exams, no direction, no no idea of what I was going to do next. And I just said, yeah, okay, you know, go and work on a boat. And four days later, I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. How lucky, how lucky am I? You know, I, I fell, I just fell across where I was supposed to be. And I didn't particularly like the sailing at that time. I was very seasick, but I loved the camaraderie of the crew. And I loved being as an I was always an outsider. And I felt here I was with a team of people who were all outsiders and kind of we made it work. And for me, sailing is a lot of that. Um, I it's funny, actually, but the, the physical act of sailing the boat is probably um, sort of three or four on my list of why I, I love doing what I do. It's the people, firstly, and then the ocean. Being out on the ocean, I, I just, well, you will understand this. You just feel so lucky. You just cannot believe your luck that you are in this incredible environment, which is, um, and I remember the first time I ever did a transatlantic um, and also the second time I did a transatlantic, the skipper taught me how to navigate. And, you know, I'd been expelled before long division and I'm useless at maths. He said, no, no, you'll be able to do this in two days. And in two days I was navigating with a sextant and tables and charts and pencils. And I remember thinking how amazing that is that I can do what sailors for hundreds of years have done and find my way across an ocean. And I, I've always loved navigation. But then what really got me was looking at the ocean and thinking... So when Columbus sailed across the ocean, this, this is what he was looking at. Nothing has changed. In, he would have seen exactly the same thing. And all his men would have been saying, are we going to fall off the edge of the world? He's going to be, no, the world's round. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you're in such an amazing environment for me. That's my absolute love and passion of the ocean. It's, it's where I can be who I am. So when I was watching the film, I was, one ch- shot I was confused about. So you're going to have to explain this to me. So you talks about you getting on as cook on this, on this boat, this charter boat, and then it shows a power boat there. And then later on, you talk about your relationship with the King of Jordan, Hussein, King Hussein of Jordan, and you show him furling sails and it's a sailboat. So which boat is it? Is it a power boat or a sailboat? A little bit of poetic license at the beginning of my life because I didn't film that much at the beginning of my life. Um, so the first boat I got on was a 120 foot power boat okay. called Kovalam. Um, it was actually used in the film, um, the Agatha Christie film. Um, oh, I can't remember the... the anyway. Um, and I then graduated onto sailboats. And the, when I met King Hussein, uh, it was a, a very funny story. I didn't have any work. I was doing day, day jobs. And um, Whitey, Captain Whitey, my friend, called me up about some ridiculous time in the morning and said, Tracy, I've got a job, I've got a job, I need a stewardess. It's a very important person, I don't know who it is, we've got to go to Martha's Vineyard to pick them up. And I'm like, I really don't want to get out of bed, Whitey. He said, no, 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 please, please, thank goodness I did get out of bed that day. Uh, We went over to Martha's Vineyard and the charter was with King Hussein and Queen Noor. And his son, Prince Abdullah, who's now King Abdullah of Jordan, had just graduated. And so we spent the day with them, which was brilliant. And he, um, after they'd done, had lunch, um, you know, he helped us fill the set. He was fantastic. His brother, Prince Hassan, was on the wheel. I and mean, it was just a fantastic day. 
So I was doing the washing up down below and uh, I felt this sort of presence beside me and I turned around and there's King Hussein and he's got a tea towel in his hand. I said, you can't dry up dishes. He went, I can do anything I like. I'm King. So he did. He dried the dishes <laughs> and he's chatting away. And what I learned about him is because I had my friendship spanned a number of years until he died, um, was that he just loved people. He was fascinated by people. He had a genuine interest um, an understanding of, of human beings. And he said to me, he said, this lifestyle, he said, it's like nomads. You're like nomads of the desert. You're like nomads of the sea. And I thought, oh, I don't know what a nomad is, but I like the sound of that. So he said to me, you know, what, what are you up to next? I said, I'm going to sail around the world on this thing called the Whitbread Around the World Race um, with a bunch of guys. And I'm a bit worried about it. He said, sounds amazing. Keep me, keep me updated with where, how it goes. And that's how we started our friendship. So describe to the to the audience what the Whitbread Round the World race is. No, it's it's a full round the world race, but it's not nonstop. So let's talk about the stops and where you go and the length of the legs. Well, the Whitbread has been through a number of um, different phases. Uh, I this is awful. I think the first Whitbread was in 1972. No, there's one where Robin Knox Johnson went around the world, but no. that was that was not the Whitbread. That was a different one. So Robin did the Golden Globe, which was in the 60s. I'm not quite that was a single-handed race, right? Single-handed. He was the only person that finished. And, of course, that was the race that Donald Crowhurst, very sadly, threw himself over the side of the boat. Such a sad story. Now, the Whitbread was, um, I think the first one was in 1972, which is way after uh, Robin's time. And it was a kind of a, a very British Corinthian adventure. And it was literally, get hold of any boat you can, throw some food on it, chuck some people on it and, and sail around the world and, and we'll, we'll race from place to place and um, it was run by the Royal Navy as a race committee and you couldn't think of anything more bizarre but in a way it was perfect because it really did have that underlying adventurous spirit that 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 real you know um you know, not too many rules and regulations let's go out there and see what we can do what we're made of what this boat is made of and it evolved through the years, and I did the 85-86 race, um, which was still very much <laughs> a bunch of pirates sailing around the world, really. There weren't the huge sponsors, so we were pretty much left to do what we wanted to do. The sailing was fantastic. We were all a big family of you know, people who were, were you know, competing to death at sea, but then best friends on land. The 89-90 race, the one we did, it was just starting to turn a little bit professional. And it had, so the 85-86 race was the perfect one for me because it was four legs, four legs of equal length, about between six and a half and 7,000 miles per leg, which is about seven weeks at sea, which is perfect. The 89-90 race, they wanted to bring in America. So it was the first stop they uh, had in Fort Lauderdale. And we also couldn't stop in South Africa that year because of the apartheid um, and uh, sorting events, you know, sort of not being allowed there. So we stopped in Uruguay twice. So you had five legs, um, sorry, six legs and five stopovers. Okay. Now, in the movie, you start taking on water just as you turn up from Cape Horn. And that's the one leg, if I understand if my geography is correct, that's the one leg you're always going to be going into the wind. There's no way around that except going into the wind unless you go all the way over by Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, so what you're doing is you're juggling these really complicated weather systems as you come out of the Southern Ocean. I put us in a really not great position, uh, which was very annoying um, coming out of the Southern Ocean. We didn't have that much wind going around Cape Horn, but, you know, no damage. 
And then as we came, come around Cape Horn, you know you are going to be beating for probably 10 days up to Uruguay. I mean, we did we headed out towards the Falkland Islands um, as much as we could to sort of um, try and get a better angle coming back in. But that was really taken out of our hands when we realised that we were taking on a lot of water. And so we went from tactics and you know let's try and win this leg to oh my goodness let's try and keep the boat afloat um so you 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 change very quickly with i mean we were still sailing unbelievably um but what we realized was the boat was filling up on um, port tack and emptying out on starboard tack so we would basically fill the boat up and empty it out and we did that for four days what we eventually found out was that the, the water was we found this out months later. The water was coming down through a crack in the mast because with all the beating, we'd, we'd opened up a, a fracture in the mast. But it was coming down specifically on one side of, of the boat. And we also found out that we had... Um, uh, so we had better um, uh, pipes within the cockpits that we could get rid of it on the other side. But it was, it was pretty scary there for a while. And with the RAF Falcon coming out... Oh, sorry, Hercules coming out to just make sure we were OK... Um, but then you still have to beat your brains out for, you know, another nine days till you get to Uruguay. So did you have electric bilge pumps or were they manual bilge pumps that pumped out the water? So we had electric bilge pumps. So you're not allowed to run your engine during the race. Obviously you have a seal on your propeller. Um, the generator runs the, um, water maker, the batteries or battery power and the, um, the bilge pumps. Unfortunately for us, the water was already up to the inlet and outlet of the generator before we realised what was happening, so we couldn't use the generator. We did have to power up the engine. Obviously, we had special permission from the race to do that, and we powered the bilge pumps through the engine, but they couldn't keep up with the water intake. So you know that saying, there is no bilge pump like a bucket in the hands of a frightened sailor? Very true. Um, So we literally had... Um, we were bailing out by hand with buckets yeah, until the bail we got brigade control. going. We did, yeah. yeah. All right. So it was in the mast. I would not, not have thought of the mast. I was thinking it was going to be a through hull fitting. That's what I thought. It was the last place we thought. I mean, we looked at everything, and we, we initially we thought that because you know you've got um, we've got the outlet pipes running from the cockpit out through the through the boat and then out of the hull. Mm-hmm. We thought they'd frozen in the Southern Ocean and then had cracked as we'd been sort of as they'd melted coming out of the Southern Ocean. But we checked all of them when we got to Uruguay and it wasn't that. We really only found that it was the mast when we got back to the UK and found some significant uh, damage. <laughs> well, back in 1990, that was very at the very beginning of water making. So were you one of the, the pioneers of water making on the boat? We were. I mean, the thing looked like something from outer space. But I mean, of course, I look at it now and it's just... I mean, ours was just agricultural. I mean, you could actually see the working parts. And of course, now I look at what we've got in, in Maiden now, because we've restored her and, and um, she's all mod cons. And you look at them now and they're, you know, just these tiny little units. But the water maker went wrong at least 10 times on every single leg. Well, everything went wrong at least 10 times on every single leg. But uh, yeah, we were one of the first people um, that race. Um, but then also we were sort of the first race to use uh, sat-navs. Okay, so that that was right around the ending of Loran. Were you using Loran or Satnav at that time? We just stopped using Loran, and we just started using Navtech or um, yeah, Navtech. So we were very proud. We you know proud new owners of these two satellite units, and we're like, oh, you know, these pick up satellites. They tell you where you are. You know, it's like magic. What the manufacturers hadn't quite remembered to tell us was they didn't have the structure of satellites in place. 
<laughs> so every so often you'd sail into a complete back hole. You'd be like, you know, so you still, I still was still using Sextant and Dead Reckoning. And I mean, I think it's always good to use those things anyway. And I despair that there are some people that don't know how to do it. What do you do if the electronics go wrong? Um, but no, it was, it's kind of was the cutting edge of everything. Although, you know, we had a single sideband radio, but then I think back also to that time, we were using Portishead radio. So I'm going to look at Maiden now with her sat phone and her emails and, you know, all these other mod cons. And we had to literally use a single sideband radio to call Portishead radio, who would then make the phone call for us. And then it comes back over the airways where everyone else is listening to your private phone calls. I mean, it's just, that's of course not that long ago. Yeah, it wasn't that long yeah. ago. So you were the navigator and so you didn't have to stand a watch, but you spent all your time down in the nav table. What was the gear that you had on them? Well, you've already described the water maker and the sat nav and the radios. What other navigation gear did you have? Because, you know, sailors, a lot of sailors are gadget freaks, electronic freaks. We had very little. Um, I mean, we had, I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, It wasn't a computer, but it was something like a computer. Um, I can't think. I'm so sorry. Probably a Hewlett-Packard calculator. It's something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a very basic calculator. Um, So we had um, the um, single sideband radio. Of course, we had the big sailor radar at that time. (laughs) Big green. I loved those bits of equipment, you know, the big green um, equipment. Um, We had a weather fax, which was a very new thing. I mean, a fax that could go to the boat. I mean, I mean, it was a nightmare trying to get the blooming faxes out of them, you know, and, and you'd have you'd pick your favourite weather station. So my favourite weather station was in the Antarctic. It was a Russian weather station in the Antarctic. They had the best weather charts. Um, Portland uh, in America uh, had very good ones. Um, and then you, we had these dodgy <laughs> sat-navs and sextant charts and, you know, that was it, dividers and parallel rules. <laughs> So how often could you get a sun site? In the Southern Ocean, very difficult. So um, we went nine days once on just dead reckoning, uh, which was not my most pleasant nine days, I have to say. We were only 21 miles out at the end, though, so I was very happy with that. Um, sun sites, yeah, obviously very difficult in the Southern Ocean. Uh, I don't, I'm not good enough to do moon and stars, but we did have one of the girls on the boat who is. So, you know, we pulled resources on that. Uh, on the other legs... Yeah, not not that difficult. In the movie, your best friend from from high school or grade school was your cook on board. Is she still a good friend of yours now? Yeah, well, um, she's going to be hopefully at all the... Because she did all the filming, you know, that's the thing. This is down to her. Um, If she hadn't done what she'd done with the filming and, and, and persisting when we kept telling her to, Joe, go away, stop filming us and she'd be like no you'll be thankful one day and boy was she right are we ever so I think it's a huge testament to her what she did Um, and in in the most appalling conditions sometimes you know I wouldn't have got up there with a camera I mean just one hand for the boat one hand for the camera I mean for goodness sake Um, but if you speak to um, Alex who's the director he says you know that a lot of the success of this documentary is the little bits she filmed in between the big stuff you know, it's just the little bits of human activity, which I wouldn't have thought of doing and didn't think of then. But I watched the documentary now and I'm like, that's what you were filming. Oh, OK, I get it. Um, so we've all now had a big reunion, all of us together. First one in 30 years. For the, so that's been uh, 
interesting. Um, we think we all look the same, obviously. Um, although it was quite funny at one point, I was going, where are my glasses? And Mickey's going, what? I can't hear you. <laughs> so <laughs> Blind leading the blind. Um, but no, Jo, um, I just love the fact that she's got to see the results of what she did all that time later. So how did you find your crew? You, you touch on that a little bit in the, in the film, but not, not that heavily. Yeah. Were these people that you, all, you knew ahead of time or were they applic- applicants that wanted to, to go with you? How, did you? how did you choose your crew? At this point, I'd love to be able to say that I had a plan and it was all really well organized. But Maiden, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we literally made it up as we, as we went along. I mean, you know, Howard, some bloke I met down the pub, he said, I'll be a project manager. I'm like, okay. Uh, so we, we, but what Maiden did do was she attracted extraordinary people. So it, it was like a magnet for anyone who wanted to become involved in something where it was a fight or a battle. Or so we had a real mishmash of people. A lot of people come and go through the project who sadly aren't in the documentary. Uh, great characters. I mean, at one point I had sort of like fifty people sleeping in my house because they were all donating to the, you know, sort of the the the, um, the sailing thing, or they were packing envelopes with me for sponsorship things, or they were doing something else. And and then, you know, every so often some woman would turn up, and I think, oh, I think she'd be really good for the crew or whatever. And you know, so she'd hang around, and we we kind of formed a nucleus, which I guess was probably about. Four four or five of us. And then I did realise that, listen, I need <laughs> I need an engineer, an electrician, cell maker, doctor. I need to fill these jobs and they've got to be great sailors. But I'm getting a real good sense of what this team is going to look like. Um, so that's when we did interviews. And, and by that point, it was word of mouth. And we had about 460 letters um, and contacts from girls saying, um, you know, how do I join? And we, we whittled them down to about 100. And yet if you think, I mean, it's only... This is not that long ago, but there really weren't that many, you know, women sailors who'd, who'd done that much. And, and I mean, I was the only one on the boat that ever been around the world. And so we did do some interviews, but I mean, they I'm guessing they probably weren't really what you'd call technical interviews in, in today's terms. And for me, it was more a feel for them and how we fitted together and I also obviously had the luxury of taking two years to pick my crew so you know people came and went and it was a it was like putting a jigsaw puzzle together I had my nucleus and then I wanted to fit in the other bits and pieces around it and we had you know with Mary Claude um obviously we got it wrong but we're now best mates so you know and she was better being on Heineken which was the next all female crew so we, we kind of came together, so I sort of motley bound, really, um, all driven by the same passion. How big was the crew? We had the 12 on the boat, and we had 14 all together, so we had two uh, standbys. All right. So what's happened to your life since that? The ending of this film is great. I don't know. I want, I'm not going to ruin it. But since, <laughs> since then... Well, what have you done, what have you been doing? Has this been the, I guess, the springboard for the rest of your life? Well, it was really because it it taught me who I was, and I didn't realise that I was an activist or a feminist when I started Maiden. I just thought I was someone that wanted to do something. I'd been told I couldn't. and was quite annoyed. When I got to the end of Maiden, it set me up for everything I did from then on. And I think a lot of the girls would say exactly the same thing. I, I understood that I was someone that needed to fight for a cause or, 
you know, a project or... And uh, so my next project was another all-female crew, and that was um, the first all-female crew to attempt the non-stop round-the-world record. And then after that, I set up the first ever round-the-world race to start and finish in the Middle East. Um, I mean, it's been an up, up, up-and-down roller coaster ride, not all smooth sailing. Um, I had my daughter, so I gave up dangerous sailing because I, I didn't want to risk my life anymore. And... Uh, and then ended up two, three years ago rescuing my old boat maiden, and now we're back together. All right, so, so so you had a bit of a struggle to finance this whole project, and you talk about it in the film a bit, but you you don't come from wealth. You didn't. You basically pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, so to speak. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel I was born. At a very, I, I feel I'm very lucky because although we didn't have a lot, I feel that when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, there were great opportunities. I worry about my daughter's generation because I think it's harder. You know, I, I left school at the age of 15. I walked straight into a job in a factory putting rubber pipes on the back of gas ovens, you know, and it didn't matter what I was doing. I was doing, I was learning, I was earning a wage. I think that's harder to do now, but I've always been a grafter. So um, and my, I, my generation, our generation is, you know, you, you, you work hard, you earn your money, you, you pay your way, you get on. And that was always drummed into me by my parents. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have had that. So for me, it was just a very natural thing that if you want to make something happen, no one's going to give it to you. You've got to go and you've got to go and work for it. And I also felt as well. I mean, all the money that we raised before King Hussein came in with the the sponsorship with Royal Jordanian, I felt all the money we raised beforehand that was really important to do that because if we're not going to get out there and shake the can and you know bring in the money and put our own whatever we earn into that as well, why do we expect other people to come in and give us their sponsorship? So I think. I was brought up in an environment which really taught me the value of doing that. And I just feel very lucky that it was, I didn't, I, it just, I just did it naturally. Yeah, but you put it all on the line. You, you leveraged yourself to the hilt to do this. But I can't not. I don't know how not to do that. And I can't understand how you wouldn't do that. So <laughs> I know it's really weird. So my mum who is one of the most amazing women I've ever met, one of her greatest sayings was, don't give up today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So this is like a curse. Because if I ever think, I can't do this anymore, I have to know what's going to happen tomorrow, just because I'm nosy more than anything else. So that keeps me going to the next day. And then I have to keep going to the next day. And the other thing someone said to me is, how how do you never give up? What is that? Is there some secret that you can write and share and you know whatever I said it's not I I don't know how I don't know how to give up I don't know what that looks like I don't know what the process is what do you do do you say I'm giving up and then how do what how does that work for me it's always easier going forwards I mean it's not easier but it's um it makes more sense to me and I guess the only time I would give up is when I'm I would be on my knees and I absolutely cannot go any further because I think you can always go a bit further and I think that's what the Whitbread and Maiden taught us as, um, and why we're so lucky to have learned this lesson is that human beings are 
capable of such extraordinary feats and such amazing things. And I don't think many of us, you know, I don't think we live in an age now where we push to achieve those, um, oh, I don't know, those to find out what we're made of. And, I, and as I say, I feel very lucky to have, you know, the, the ocean teaches you what you're made of, as you very well know. And sometimes that's a surprise. And sometimes you think, you know, I can't stay awake for another hour on this watch. And then you do, because you have to. Because otherwise, you know, the boat's going to founder. So it's this process. And I, I understand that. I don't understand how to give up. So what are you going to do with Maiden this summer? She is going to... So she's just about to go through the Suez Canal. Very exciting. Um, so we've restored her, and uh, that's been supported by King Hussein's daughter, Her Royal Highness Princess Haya. So she's done the first part of the project. Now the second part of the project is we're doing a two-year world tour with Maiden. We've got a load of guest skippers on the boat. So the first skipper we've got is Nikki Henderson, who just came second in the clipper, youngest clipper skipper. Uh, the next skipper is Wendy Tuck, who's the first woman to win a round-the-world race. That only took 30 years. Um, and then the next skipper is we've got Dee Kafari, uh, who's, of course, solo um, first woman to sail solo both ways and has been around the world six times. Seriously, crazy. Uh, and then we've also got um, an amazing uh, crew of women, and we're also going to be taking mile builders, so young women who you know, will benefit from mentoring, getting some miles under their belts so that they can then get onto race boats and, and other um, parts of their career. Um, the main thrust of what we're doing is we're raising funds and awareness for girls' education. So 130 million girls around the world are currently not allowed or don't have an education. I threw mine away. So I feel very strongly that, you know, if girls want an education, they should have one. And that's the only way we're going to sort everything in the world out. It's the solution, I'm convinced, to everything. Total equality in education. Um, and Maiden, for me, for that to be the next part of her story just seems so natural. All right. So is there anything else you want to add before we call it an interview? Sorry for talking your ears off. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it, but I always like to give people the opportunity to, to fill in any blanks that I've missed. I think, no, I think I've talked quite enough. Thank you so Thank much. You do so. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.